Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. This podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, and this is a new series of programs focusing on what you might call hard verses. In each episode of this program, I'll interview a member of the Coming Home Network International about some scripture verse that they considered or would have considered hard or difficult to understand. And then we'll discuss how their journeys of faith in Jesus Christ brought them to a deeper understanding of that particular verse. I guess this is what you might call an in-between week because my guest this week is Jim Anderson, my associate here at the Coming Home Network. Hello, everyone. And uh, we're here in the in the alternate weeks when I have a guest coming from outside the Coming Home Network. Next week, it'll be Steve Ray, uh, which we're looking forward mm-hmm. to Steve joining us. So that makes doesn't make me a spare tire. I just have a spare tire. <laughs> you and me, too. Uh, we're... We're here to answer some of your emails, Facebook and tweet questions, and we've gotten quite a few. And so just a reminder that um, if you want more information about this program or we'd like to access past episodes, just be sure to visit deepinscripture.com. And once you're at the site, you can submit questions or offer feedback, and we'd love to hear from you. You just send us an email at questions at deepinscripture.com or by finding us on Facebook or Twitter. So we've picked out a couple of of emails and uh, tweets that we'll get to in a moment. But before I thought we'd jump into it, uh, again, just a thought on this concept of hard verses. And, and it came to me this week as I was reading a a book that, I almost want to put in everybody's must-read book. It's not necessarily an easy book to read. I think half the time I've finished a paragraph, I'm wondering, what did the guy say? But uh, <laughs> but it's a book called The Metaphysical Club, and it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning book by, uh, I think, a professor from maybe Harvard. Uh, but it's a history of some of the key philosophers in the 19th century whose ideas have so shaped our present culture. And if you will, the trajectory of these, of these thinkers came from Emerson through Oliver Wendell Holmes to William James to Charles Pierce and then to Dewey. And these thinkers, almost all of them would have been either classified as agnostic or nominal or at best deist, their, their, their thinking so shaped, and you would add into that category Darwin, who was about the same time, and Huxley, that their philosophies have so shaped the thinking of the 20th and now the 21st century of our culture that the problem is that most of us live our lives to a certain extent oblivious to how our surroundings and our culture have been influenced by the thinking of these men. Mm-hmm. And um, the scary part is we're totally unaware of it. Uh, it it's not so much that they influence our, th- our active thoughts, but they create the structure 
of how we presuppose our worldview and to the point that we don't even know what's happening. Yeah, they they shape the lenses of our thinking Mm -hmm. is the way it seems to me. Um, I was out this morning with a pair of binoculars trying to figure out what bird was making all that crazy noise out on our farm. And, you know, I had to, to shift the focus on mm-hmm. those binoculars to to catch the bird and not the tree's limbs around it between the bird and me. So I'm, I'm trying to focus in. But we have mental lenses. And these mental lenses have been shaped all our lives. And today, particularly with the media, that our lenses are being shaped by television and internet and by radio and movies and uh, whatever the games were playing, all this stuff is shaping the lenses of our thinking. And a lot of Christians believe that they're immune to this because they choose to face life through the Bible alone, as if Mm -hmm. all they need is the lens of the Bible. And with the scriptures alone, I can know what's true. I can know Jesus Christ. I can know how to live my life. All I need is the Bible alone. And they're oblivious to the lens of their mind through which they are looking at Scripture. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where we talk about hard verses, I remember Christians that I knew back in the years when I was a pastor, we didn't think there were any hard verses. We, We assumed we had an answer to any Scripture. And that it would, f- we didn't think of it so much as fitting within our theology because we didn't believe that our theology came before Scripture. We believe our theology came from Scripture alone. And so when we were using the lenses of our theology to explain a difficult verse, we assumed we were using Scripture to, to clarify that verse. Yeah. Now, as as you're talking, though, I'm also thinking that's a uniquely Calvinist perspective, too, to to think that you had it all figured out. Coming from my Methodist background, we assumed we didn't have it all figured out quite often. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, there's a sense in which many pastors feel they have an obligation to have an answer when they're pushed into a corner about a mm-hmm. difficult verse because the assumption is we have it in the Westminster Confession if you have a, you have a difficult verse it, it's assumed that the Bible is perspicuous and so there's another verse somewhere that will explain it or explain it away and mm-hmm. uh, we're going to look at some scriptures later <clears throat> and we're going to see that if this comes out a couple times mm-hmm. where how do you explain a verse? Well, there's a te- I still have the temptation. Well, let's grab, open the Bible and find a couple other verses to explain it because that was the lens through which I approach Scripture. But what I'm getting at in this opening is this idea that there are philosophies in our culture that have shaped our thinking. And actually, in, in my reading of this book... As I said, sometimes I don't have a clue where they're coming from when I read their philosophies. I'm not a philosophy major. But what it made me realize is that these men that come across as two-dimensional whenever you read a biography, you only see, you get a glimpse of these men through the eyes of the biographer. Mm -hmm. 
But when you realize, no, these were three-dimensional, real body and soul men for whom Christ died, who God loved and had a long life like all of us, day by day, that you take Emerson or Oliver Wendell Holmes or William James or uh, Pierce or Dewey, Darwin, Huxley, uh, you throw in Kant, you know, the, the, the Scottish philosophers that were shaping this whole time period. These men live their entire lives convinced that they were right, that the conclusions they had come from examining the world around them, coming up with ideas, how do you explain personality, how do you explain culture, how do you explain individuals, um, that they, they believed to their dying day that what they were saying was true. And I would say that to a great part, they were very, very wrong. And it's interesting. I wonder how often they tried to analyze their own presuppositions if their starting block was proper to begin with. Because if you're, you start out in a race and you're a little bit off, the longer you race, the farther you're going to get off track. Yeah. And how many of them, with an open mind, said, are my naturalist presuppositions based on reality and reason? Yeah, and I mean, the truth is the author of this book uh, doesn't address this issue, but if you take a step back, you realize that all of these, these men and pro professors, most of them were either at Harvard or at the University of Chicago or at uh, some of the earlier um, uh, New England universities, mm -hmm. uh, Dartmouth as such, very much involved with the early days of these universities, most of them were Protestant. Most of them were a trajectory. When you think about it, they were a trajectory of uh, individual interpretation. They, they had uh, rejected long ago, generations before, the idea of a of a tradition, of a church. Or of an authority. An authoritative rule of faith from which to understand Scripture. That had been thrown out with the Reformers, and then generation after generation led to Protestant liberalism, led to deism, led to all these thinking where the individuals believe that truth comes from within them, mm -hmm. within us. And so when you look at Scripture, we believe that all I need to understand Scripture is me, is my intellect. And if we're blind to the wrong presuppositions from which we begin, Jim, as you were saying, mm -hmm. if we're blind to that, and we're also blind to the lenses through which we're looking at Scripture that have been shaped by the philosophies that are in our culture, then how can we know that on our own we're reading Scripture clearly? A, a Scripture text that, that came to mind as I was thinking about this is Colossians 2.8, when Paul writes, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy, an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Now, when I was a more fundamentalist, Protestant Christian, I just believed all traditions were 
were included in here. And all philosophies. All philosophies. And I, the point was that yet, as a Calvinist, I was blind to how my Calvinist tradition shaped everything that I read, because, Jim, I didn't realize to what extent my Calvinist lenses made me see Scripture different than you yeah. as a Methodist. Yeah. And you also would have been shocked if someone had pointed out as a Calvinist that you were a nominalist. <laughs> I didn't even know what nominalism was mm -hmm. in a philo philosophical sense. I thought but nominalism was, uh, you know, kind of lukewarmness. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's not what the philosophy means. And our point with this little discussion at first is just to recognize that there's the reason that this issue of hard verses is that we want to point out that there are scriptures that are difficult depending on where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that Jim and I and our other guests do this, is to recognize that there is a lens that our Lord has given us mm -hmm. through which we are to look to understand Scripture. Mm -hmm. And that is the church that he gave us in his apostles, centered around Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit that he promised in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 to lead us into all truth. So that we're not, we're not scrambling for some other verse to explain a difficult verse. We're looking at it through the truth of the church. And um, earlier when you were saying when you were um, an evangelical Protestant pastor that you didn't see that there were any hard verses, I was pointing out to you earlier did you ever think of Second um, Peter 3, beginning in uh, verse 15, where even Peter himself says, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. Yeah, and that's such an important scripture that warns against private interpretation. Mm -hmm. And it's all over the place. You turn on any radio and listen to many Christian uh, radio programs, and you'll hear a variety of interpretations of the same verse. So, uh, well, Jim, let's move on then to some of our questions that we received, and we thank all of you for your thoughts. And once again, Jimmy and I aren't here posing as as the ultimate biblical scholars. We just want to point out the difficulties of some scriptures and where we can all go for answers to mm -hmm. understand. Right. The first email we received is from a, a woman named Jean, and she is referring to Matthew ten twenty eight, And she says, so let me read the verse, and then I'll read her email. The verse in 10, Matthew ten twenty eight. this is the Revised Standard Version. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And she writes, I have a Jehovah Witness friend that says that this scripture proves that the soul dies, or as they say, is annihilated. As a Catholic, I have a problem with the soul being able to be destroyed when I know it is immortal. Can you help me with this first? Thank you, and God bless, Gene. Mm -hmm. Now, first, Jim, 
Okay, what about this first? From well, your background, would it have been difficult for you? No, or do you see that it, that it I can, can be see different? how from someone from a, like a Jehovah's Witness or any of the Adventist traditions, they would have problems uh, could misinterpret this. I personally didn't uh, have problems with it because I didn't think that it was talking about annihilation. So therefore, I had no problem with it. But I know many people misinterpret the Greek word for that is translated here destroy and assume it means destroying both the body and soul into non-existence. Well, actually, this verse is a great example of the lenses through which we mm -hmm. look at Scripture because uh, especially during the, and I'm, I'm sure a better church historian will have a better mm -hmm. answer to this than I will, but uh, I remember in my readings recognizing that in the 18th century America that there was a rise amongst Puritan pastors in New England mm -hmm. who were having a real difficulty with the Calvinist way of understanding um, our judgmental God and were having a difficult time putting together his mercy with his Mm -hmm. his uh, purity, his judgment. And so they began struggling with the idea of a everlasting burning cauldron called hell. And so they struggled with the idea that how can a just God send a, a person to everlasting torment mm -hmm. for a minor sin in this world? Because remember, Puritans didn't, they have a distinction between mortal and venial sin. They just yeah. said sin, sin. Sin, sin. Sin yeah. separates with God. You lie, you're deserving of hell. And Jonathan Edwards made a lot of that with that little spider dangling over the flames. So they, interesting, one of the founders of New England Unitarian Universalism, his name was Chauncey, his, and he was hesitant to publish his ideas, but he basically believed that everyone who died would go to a place until their sins were purged and then they would all be saved. And that, that's where we get universalism, Unitarianism. Interestingly enough, he, he made hell into purgatory yeah. is what he did because he couldn't handle the idea of, of anyone being punished for eternity. Mm -hmm. So, because traditionally, from the beginning of the church, it has always been understood that every single person who has ever lived and will ever live will live forever. We will all live forever. The question is where? Right. With or without God? That's been the rule of faith of the church from the beginning. Now, once you cast away that that lens of the church, the early church fathers, the sacred tradition, and then you start using your own philosophies to figure it out and, and have a problem with the way some verses come together, then you have one side that wants to kind of eliminate hell by making it into a purgatory, which is what the universalists did, you, so that everyone goes to a place until the end of time and they'll all be saved. Or they go the other side, which is annihilation. Mm -hmm. 
In other words, when you die, if you don't spend eternity with God, you're annihilated. Right. And that was considered heresy in the early days of the church. So you have these two lenses that people commonly banter around in our culture. So how do we end up interpreting this text? One interesting thing, too, here is uh, in this passage, the major thrust of what Jesus is saying is don't fear those who are going to persecute you. That's what he's trying to get across. The, the, where we get stuck on is his illustration of why not to fear the persecutors, which is an interesting thing. We qu- quite often get stuck on the minutiae and forget <laughs> the big picture. Yeah, the, the point here, again, within the lens of the church is that you and I are going to live forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am I am quite hopeful that the body that I'll have to spend eternity is going to be a little bit different than the one that I'm struggling with at this point. It'll be my, smaller. It, it hopefully <laughs> will be healthier uh, and thinner. But, but the point is we will live forever body and soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the key word here uh, that... Uh, um, Gene's uh, Jehovah's Witness friend is uh, pointing out is the word destroy. And in the Greek, that's apollomi. The thing is, it does not mean extinction in the Greek. Uh, If you uh, look at it in the context and how it is used in uh, other contexts, it can mean ruin or loss but not loss of existence, um, more of loss of well-being. And quite often, in, it's used in other places, and it's never translated destroy, such as in Matthew ten six, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's the same word. Yeah. And there's, there are many others where it is translated lost. It does not necess- necessarily mean annihilation or total destruction. And a lot of that idea comes from the Jehovah Witness theology, which became their lenses through which they interpreted all kinds of scriptures to fit within their theology. You know, analogy of this very text, and I'm not, I'm not here saying I know where anybody's going to spend eternity, mm. but if you have a... A, a terrorist who's trying to force a Christian to denounce their faith. And that Christian refuses to denounce their faith. And the terrorist then uses a huge machete and cuts their head off. That terrorist has only been able to hurt the body of that Christian, mm-hmm. not the soul. But the terrorist's body and soul are heading to destruction because of what they did. Unless, of course, he repents and turns to Christ. So there's the distinction. Mm -hmm. Human being can't hurt soul. Yeah. But now there's the other point here, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now I've found even different interpretations of who him is in this passage, is he referring to the devil or to God? And my conclusion from looking at it through how I understand our faith 
is that the only person we need to fear in this entire universe is God. Right. And that should drive us to our knees. We should lead from servile to filial fear, a love for God. But the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, not the fear of the devil, because the devil cannot destroy or annihilate or anything, cannot damage us. He can tempt us. And he doesn't send us to hell. God does if we choose to be apart from God. And ultimately, we are the ones who send ourselves to hell. Exactly. All right. Well, that's some discussions on that. Let's go to another one. This came from... Una Marie. Una Marie. And she's referring to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And um, there are several interpretations of the following passage. And uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead and read that long passage? This is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. In it he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, who had once been disobedient, while God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. This prefigured baptism, which saves you now, it is not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Yes, she then wrote that the the New American Bible uh, Revised Edition footnotes were vague and superficial, and most translations do not even address this passage. And the footnotes of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a Baptist-based translation, present four possible definitive interpretations. And she'd like to see a detailed Catholic interpretation of this perplexing Mm -hmm. scripture passage and thanks us. And And I thank her. And let me affirm, on the one hand, that there is there is some perplexity about this passage and even in the Catholic study Bible that I have here in front of me it dedicates an entire page to this passage giving a variety of historical interpretations that can be held within Mm -hmm. the rule of faith Um, uh, because at the bottom line one of the key issues here is who is it that Jesus is preaching to and what is their state? Um, and also, exactly, you know, it says in prison. Well, when you're thinking in prison, uh, quite often, well, English, we have the word hell. Greek and Hebrew have several different words. Are they talking about Sheol or in the Greek Hades? Or are they talking about Gehenna or even worse, Tartarus? And it's generally believed that he's preaching to the souls in Hades or Sheol, the abode of the dead, where before Christ's triumphant resurrection, everybody went because the gates of heaven were barred. Uh, So the righteous and the unrighteous, they weren't housed in the same area. uh, If you can say spirits are in one area or another, but... um, 
but he's gone to preach, and he's there to preach good news. Uh, the word for to pre preach or proclaim that is used, kerusain, uh, without qualifications, is almost always proclaiming good news. Well, if he's preaching to the damned, he wouldn't have any good news to give them. So he's preaching to those, telling them what he's done, who he is, and where in a short time they're going to be going. So it's a joyous occasion for them. Yeah. One thing I've appreciated in coming, becoming Catholic and recognizing that this, this wonderful way of looking at Scripture through the eyes of the church is that the church recognizes that revelation stopped at a certain time. Mm -hmm. And that after that, we've got men and women who, in their love for Christ, were guided by the Spirit. But there's a hesitancy whenever we want to step over the line into areas that we don't know. Mm -hmm. We come up with explanations for difficult. You know, how do we understand that the the uh, elements of the Eucharist become the body, blood, and soul of divinity of Christ in the sacrament. How do we understand that? Well, to a certain extent, we recognize it's beyond us. We don't know. So we, the church, philosophers, theologians, fighting it, trying to understand, come up with a transubstantiation to best be able to describe what's going on there. But even in the end, we recognize that it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. The word sacrament is the word mystery. So even this idea of what is heaven like, what's hell like, who is there, uh, purgatory, there's a mystery there. The church says what things aren't, but leaves many windows, windows open right. for understanding. So what is this prison that Peter's talking about? Peter's writing towards the end of the first century. Church has been around for 30 years. End of the first century, 60 years. 60 years? Well, he's... Well, no, 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 30 years. Uh, be, before he's killed. Before he's killed around 67, yeah, so 30 years, yeah. So already the 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 gospel has been proclaimed, it has been passed on, mm -hmm. our Lord to his apostles, to the disciples, and terminology is rising. So what did Peter mean by prison? What did the early Christians mean by prison? Uh, these are, he's not quoting the words of Christ. This is Peter's explanation right. of what Christ did. And <clears throat> where did he get this idea that Christ did this? Except maybe our Lord shared this. He had 40 days. He could in have the resurrection. had plenty of time to tell about so, it. So, uh, you know, this is, and, and part of the problem is that the, the there's far more in the apostolic deposit of faith that was passed on orally that ever ended up written down in the New mm -hmm. Testament. So the, the whole com original commentary on this was oral tradition. Right. So what was meant by this prison? We know of a parable where Christ talks about a man being put into prison until he pays the last farthing. Mm -hmm. Well, that idea, of, that implies that he will eventually get out mm -hmm. of that prison once he pays the last farthing. So that, you know, in that parable implies that the guy was at a place where he's not condemned for eternity, but that he's, he's in a waiting place. And one of the 
hard parts for me for this passage in the past was the section where it's talking about um, Noah and the time of the building of the ark. It's like if you read it too um, narrowly, you come to the conclusion only eight people were saved. Everybody before that is damned. But the church has tradition had has had a there has been a traditional understanding that the people he's talking to here are those who didn't get on the ark. They didn't. But you've got a lot of time to think after the ark's doors are closed and the rain's falling. So the church has traditionally given hope to those people and said. He's preaching good news of salvation to those who repented before they drowned. <laughs> yeah, the church uses criteria to determine who she believes are in heaven. We call those people saints. Right. But the church has never declared anyone specifically in hell. Right. Though the church says clearly since the scriptures teach that there is mortal sin, we see that at the end of First mm -hmm. John, and that means that somebody dies in mortal sin, they will be separated from God forever. Mm -hmm. So the church believes that, and Christ says that the, the gate is very narrow mm -hmm. through which we enter into eternity with God. So we know in general that there are people that are there. But this, even it said there, Jim, those spirits in prison who had once been disobedient mm -hmm. while God patiently waited seems to carry the idea that they were disobedient, but then there was hope that there was, yeah. they turned to God and said, I, I messed up, I was wrong. There Noah had was been right. a time when they were disobedient. Right. right. So there's, there's one way of seeing it, but again, to Una Maria, this, there's no definitive answer to this passage, but mm -hmm. you need to look at it through the lenses of the rule of faith mm -hmm. uh, to avoid our little speculative ideas. Let's see if we get one more at least, Jim. This is... Uh, Squeeze it in. Comes from Karen, I think. Um, um, uh, oh, either Tony or Karen, both names yeah, were used. The, the question was on... Um, uh, she writes, First uh, Timothy two five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And then also John fourteen six. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, the the point is, the person writing this says, Christ is the way to the Father. You don't need traditional religion as a buffer. Go to God through his only begotten son. Mm -hmm. Now, if I get this email right, this is Tony writing to Karen. Yeah. Trying to tell her to abandon traditional religion. All you need is you and Jesus. Mm -hmm. You don't need anything else. Now, Tony has one problem there. He's using traditional religion as a buffer when he quotes from the Bible to back his position, rejecting traditional religion. Where else did the Bible come from if not the Catholic Church, whose bishops in succession to the apostles, in union with the successor of St. Peter in Rome, made the final decision of what books were going to be in that Bible he's using as his authority. And he's wanting his cake and eating it too. 
There is no Christian denomination or association or church that doesn't have a tradition. Mm -hmm. There is none. And as soon as someone says we have no tradition, they've just expressed a tradition. They have a tradition, which is no tradition. It's like denominations that don't believe in denominations. <laughs> they have a lens through which they look at Scripture. And so he is taking two verses, throwing them together, and then saying all you need is Jesus. And, okay, the problem is why do you trust this book that was collected by Catholic bishops, as you say? But also the question is who's Jesus? Mm -hmm. Which Jesus are you talking about? How do you understand him? Is he fully God, fully man? Or was he a man that God chose and, and raised up? Was he only a spirit that appeared to be a man? You know, was he 100% God, but 5% man? I mean, how do you understand? Where do you get your idea from? If you come back with my idea of Jesus, is he 100% man, 100% God, where do you get that in the Bible? You're quoting tradition. You're quoting the tradition guided by the spirit, so you're comparing apples and oranges here. Right. You know, Christ is the way to the Father. You don't need traditional religion as a buffer. This isn't logical. Now, the key to the verses, to look through the lens of the church, is that as Catholics, we would 100% agree with these scriptures. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Of course. Yeah. That's, There's nothing wrong with the scriptures at all. John 14, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. How do you apply that? What about someone that's never known the name Jesus? Can they be saved? Or what about someone that... It doesn't know anything about the Catholic Church or anything about sacraments, but they know only about Jesus. Is that they've never read the Bible? We recognize that anyone who is saved is saved because of Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not, because God, in His mercy, can save whom He wants, because He looks at our hearts. And we're judged by what we know and how we live according to what we know. And so someone who's never heard the name Christ, God can save that person mm -hmm. through Christ and his church. Because we are, the, I mean, again, now we're looking through the sacred tradition that as we just read in the passage in First Peter, just a bit ago, where the uh, Peter said this prefigured baptism, which saves you now. Right. And the traditional understanding of all the passages in the New Testament that deal with baptism is that Christ intended baptism to be the, the door through which we enter into his body, the church. Why don't we end there, Jim? We've gone a little bit over, and uh, we, we've just touched on some of these passages. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank the rest, all of you, for joining us on this program. We'd love to hear your comments about our statements, again, we're, we're not trying to give all the definitive answers, but we're trying to point out that if you're trying to interpret Scripture on your own, there's always a danger that you can be blind to the lenses through which you're looking that have been shaped by our culture or shaped by a great variety of issues. And that's why 
it isn't just this wonderful book of scriptures alone that the Lord gave us it through the church. But just a reminder that we want you to hear from you. You can email us questions at ch network. Excuse me, questions at deepinscripture.com, or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button that you'll find at the website at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, and to pray with us. And you can do so by visiting www.chnetwork.org. As I mentioned earlier, our guest next week will be Steve Ray. And so please join us and thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture.